The BS Report is a free-flowing conversation that occasionally touches on mature subjects. The BS Report. The BS Report with Bill Simmons. Welcome to the BS Report. Hazy, a little bit chilly Tuesday morning here in Southern California. One of my favorite writers ever is on the podcast today. The guy who taught me just about everything I needed to know about basketball when I was growing up in the Boston area. And he wrote a new book called Scribe that has been out for a little while. And he's doing more publicity for this book than he's done for how many other ones did you do? 11? 11. And you've done the most publicity for this one. You're in the grind. You're doing interviews. You're all over the place. I love it. This is great. They got me out there. And so I'm really happy. It's been fun. Um, it's totally, utterly new experience for me. Believe me. Um, I don't think even the Larry Bird book, which obviously I had nothing to do with. That was all about him. Uh, I don't think we did half a dozen anything total. So uh, that just was thrown out there and Larry Bird's name sold books. But other than that, um, this is a totally new experience for me, Bill. I did an intro and I didn't even say your name, Bob Ryan. Um, <laughs> you you retired from the Globe a few years ago, but yet you you I think you work harder than I do. Are you ever? You're never retiring. It's just going to keep going, and going forever. I guess. Not really. I think it's. I know there's a, there's there's a um, there's an expiration date somewhere. There's a shelf life. I don't know what it is. Uh, when I retired from the Boston Globe officially, I wrote a column in which I said that retirement was a technical term in my mind that simply meant I was no longer in the employee of the company for whom I had worked for 44 years and that this was a what I call transition to phase two. And I am now in year three of phase two. And I do not know how long phase two continues like this, which phase two consists of doing around the horn, uh, doing um, uh, sports reporters, doing local television for Comcast, uh, writing two or three columns a month, 30 to 40 a calendar year for the Globe on Sundays, in which I opine I, I don't uh, cover anything, I don't travel, and whatever else comes up, like writing a book, as right. I did last year. So it's a very busy, good, busy uh, life, but there is an expiration date. I just don't know when it is. A big theme of your book was how much it has changed as a sports writer from when when you were kind of making your bones in the 70s for the Globe and the kind of access you had versus what people have now. And, you know, first of all, I agree with you. I like, you know, the stuff that you were able to pull and I was growing up reading you in the Globe and reading your game stories. Brian Curtis wrote a great piece for Grantland about your gamers, as as they're called in the industry. But you were sitting at midcourt, and you were just grabbing nuggets left and right. The referees talking to the players, the coaches yelling, the players yelling at each other. You were hearing all this stuff, and now nobody has that access, and that drives you crazy. It does drive me crazy, and I use this, uh, continually use the reference that every time I look down there and see some five-year-old kid eating ice cream, at the press table where a writer should be, it, it really annoys me. Uh, it's not my life anymore, but it's it's the life someone else should be leading. And the writers, I mean, the <clears throat> writers have been completely marginalized for print. Uh, news, owners only care about two things in this regard. They care about television and they care about the high rollers who can afford to overspend for the courtside seats that they have created that used to belong to writers. Not even their own local radio matters in some cases, such as the Boston Celtics, where the radio yep. crew sits up in the corner and therefore has very poor access to anything happening on the far end of the court. But this appears to be of no interest to the owners. So I agree with you and I disagree with you. Go ahead. Um, I agree with you in the sense that 
that access was one of the things that made your pieces special and some other people who knew how to use that access correctly. The difference was in the 90s and this last decade before this one, you know, I, I, I go to a lot of basketball games and I would watch these people sitting at midcourt. I used to sit behind you in the old garden. My dad and I, our seats were behind the press table. So it was you and Lee Moffat, all those people. And you guys were watching. You guys were, your heads were up and you were trying to catch stuff that you could use for your piece. And at some point that changed. And I don't know when, and there was an invisible tipping point. And by the nineties, you looked at that table and everybody's heads were down and they were just, you know, writing their story or doing whatever they're doing. And now you look at this decade and I noticed this when I was doing TV, especially the last couple uh, years for ABC and ESPN, all the writers are just on Twitter and they're on the sports blog. I don't feel like they even think to use that access anymore. So in a weird way, why even give it out? I can't argue with you because as one of my uh, sources of amusement is the idea that people are tweeting actively during the game as a, almost as a job requirement, which is so alien to the way I was raised, if you will, or the way I yeah. taught myself. You're right. I probably uh, would have to concede the point that you make. I, we're not – look, this is, this is all a – Giant tube of, of uh, you know, toothpaste out of the tube, and never going back. I, I totally and utterly understand that. Uh, so we probably are talking about a, a, a situation that, that even if they were given the access, as you say, they wouldn't fully utilize it. Although who knows? Maybe someone would break, be a trendsetter. Maybe I don't know. I doubt it. You make it. Good. Well, you know, one other thing happened. And this is a part you didn't even consider, but when I tell you that, you'll be when I tell you what I'm about to say, you're gonna be like, "Oh, you're right." So it's really hard to hear stuff now at games because they're just cranking music and cranking sound effects and cranking noise, and it's like there's never a dead moment. Like I, w- I was there for the entire Patino era because you know I'm living in Boston. My dad doesn't want to go. I was bartending. Like it, it was great to go to the games. And it was dead in there. And you could hear everything. You could hear every word Patino said. You could hear every time Antoine complained to a ref. And now it's, I'm in the fourth row for Clipper games. I can't hear anything. And I think that's changed. Yeah, you know, you're so right. Um, that incessant boom, 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 boom. I yeah. mean, it, it is, it, it is, it's not fun for me to go to a game anymore. I don't enjoy, I, I, I like the action on the court, but I do not enjoy the experience of going to an NBA game. I only went to three last year in Boston. And, and I will go to, I'm trying to, I want to get myself to more this year, but I, cause I'm curious about the team, quite frankly, but um, you make it. No, that is a good point, And I had not considered that. So uh, I, I guess the, the life that, that I led is like talking about the revolutionary war, you know, or something in what a <laughs> Peloponnesian wars, I guess, or something that it doesn't exist anymore. I can only say this, I'm glad I did it when I did it, and knowing yeah. what I know now, I, there's no way I'd ever want to cover a team for any outlet, uh, any sport, given what the job requirements are and what the restrictions to fulfill those requirements are as well. Uh, I'm very lucky that I did it when I did it. I do not envy anybody doing it today. Well, you hit a couple of great points that are amazing now when you think about it. Like some of the things that happened for writers in the 70s, for instance, just being on the charters amidst the players. No and actually, or, or not the charter. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry. The just the planes, because yeah, yeah, and especially not just flying from place to place. Like back in the '70s, these guys would connect. So you'd be yeah. in the you'd be in the airport gate for three hours in Kansas City, waiting to connect to Cleveland. And well, you'd my just favorite out story the of this nature, 
Bill, is um, there was a time one night when we were flying, we being the Celtics and its entourage, which which I was a, a part, were flying east to west uh, to start a road trip. And our changing planes in Chicago, as you suggest, when we are walking down the corridor and see a large group of very tall guys coming toward us, and it turns out to be the Phoenix Suns. They are going west to east, changing planes. And we all congr- we all have time enough so that the entire everybody went uh, party went to the bar, and it was like a meeting of the fraternity. Wow! Uh, it was like a, lo- a, a local chapter meeting another uh, chapter of the fraternity. That was the NBA of the seventies. And now you see, if I, I don't know if you've seen these teams traveling these days, but everyone's got their their Beats by Dre headphones on. Sure. Nobody's interacting. Sure. Everyone's carrying their bags. They're just going from charter airport to charter airport. Mm-hmm. And it's an entirely different experience. I mean, the one year, I forget why you weren't covering the Celtics in 77, 78. Did you switch to the Red Sox or did you go to what Sports happened was I got year? off the beat at the end of the 75, 76 season, not knowing what the future would bring, just knowing I needed to get off at that point in time. I had done it seven years. I uh, yeah. was a little bit emotionally uh overwrought, uh, if you will. I And uh, I was facing a year in which I would not be getting on, along with Tom Heinz and the coach, and I didn't want that. Uh, right. And, and it, it wouldn't have benefited anyone, least of all the readers. So I got off the beat, and for the next two years, I uh, the first year I just did a lot of general features and and, and all kinds of feature writing. And the second year, uh, I did cover the Red Sox in 77, yes. So and I did the 19, when the vacancy occurred after Peter Gammons left for Sports Illustrated, the first of two times he did so, and I, I picked up the beat and I did the team all of 1977. So John Powers did the Celtics for Seven, one of those years, two, and he wrote the next two. He did yeah, 77, he 78, and seven. He did 76, 77, and 77, 78. Yes, he had it two full years, long enough to write a book. John right, Bay, I was going to say. So you read that book, and and. Half the book is just him going out for dinner with the players after the game and the players having steak and going to the scotch and sirloin and have a check complaining about Heinsohn. And, and it's just, it's an amazing reread. Cause you think like, Oh my God, in 2014, like he wouldn't even sniff a lunch with these guys. He's going out to dinner every night with them. It was unbelievable. to well, As did I, and more importantly, yeah. I went out drinking with them. until so he closed up every place in North America uh, in my, my five years. So, right. Years. So these guys are floating stuff to you. Heinsohn, I think people, you know, there's two, three generations now that don't even realize he coached the Celtics. They just know him as the crazy guy in league pass who hates every cog. It's every referee in sight. Right. Yeah. Yeah, um, no, that that is Tommy, but he's been a, in continual, continually associated with the Celtics since 1956. It's amazing. Yeah. So he coached the Celtics in the mid 70s to two titles and was a little polarizing in the locker room. And you're going out to drinks with these guys and eating and doing whatever you do, and they're all complaining to Heinsohn about you. And then you're deciding what to disperse in your stories without kind of hanging those guys out to dry. Like, what do you do with all this information? You you you're right. You have to parse it. You have to figure out what's reportable or not reportable. What what uh, uh, you're, you're making the call. Um, I used to kid about my, my you know about um, bosses. Bosses. What a boss doesn't know won't hurt him. That was one of my uh, thoughts. And right. uh, you have to you have to know how to handle all this uh, to, uh, to to negotiate your your way through all this. Uh, you develop personal credibility uh, in in. And as it t- turned out, it, it definitely led to a, a, a rift between myself and Tom Heinsohn because he thought that I reflected far too much the players' point of view rather than his own when they were when they were different. And you wrote about that in the book. It took 
decades for you guys to patch that up. No, two days, two years. That's all. In fact, we've been oh, two years. Yeah, that's all. Two years. I mean, first of all, well, it was I, thought easy because... gra- I thought he held a grudge, though. No, no, far no. I made that made it clear that I went up to him in 1978 at the testimonial dinner for his old roommate Jim Luskatov, and I said, "Would it spoil your evening if I said hello?" And he said, "No." And that was the beginning, uh, and that, uh, that was the end of it. And we've been very compatible for 36 years. I have a Heinzen painting I'm staring at here in my house because, uh, as you know, he's an accomplished artist. And um, I, I just got through interviewing him for a, a big project that will be seen to the world in a few years uh, uh, by ABC and ESPN. And uh, we're fine. And um, no, but it was it was not good uh, at the end. It was very not very much so not good. But uh, we've been okay for 36 years. We're cool. Okay. Um. It's it's kind of sad not having him at these games on these road games. I understand it. At some point, you can't travel. He just turned eighty. I know. You and he's got you know some predictable health problems now. So right. he does home games. I saw him last night coming in to, to work studio uh, for the Celtic game uh, at Comcast in Burlington, Mass. And and uh, he's still still vitally interested and still vitally optimistic and positive and and just barely ever saw something he didn't like, except for maybe Sidney Wicks. He would have he would have loved the. Uh, he would have loved the Dallas Celtics game last night with some of the calls. I think they would have had to carry him out of the arena for <laughs> throwing water at him or something. Yeah, that's funny. You missed the Celtics during one of the two years where your head probably would have exploded covering the team. Sydney, Sydney Wicks, Curtis Rowe. Yep, all you're absolutely people. right. But I got to tell you, but, Wicks, though, it's funny. But still, I wrote enough on this, you know, that Wicks um, took note of my, shall we say, journalistic presence. And when hmm. I got back on the beat in 1978, 79, uh, went to San Diego for a game in which they won on the last second basket by Randy Smith, with whom I uh, had a very nice acquaintance back to his Buffalo days. And I yeah. was interviewing Randy after the game, and I heard this sound behind me, and guys muttering, there's going to be a murder in here. There's going to be a murder in here. And I turned around with Sidney, and he, he accused me of having run him out of town. Really? And, and for once in my life, and you know how rare this is for any of us, once I actually had the right uh, word for the occasion. Uh, I said to him, Sydney, if I, if I thought I had had the power, I would have done it a lot sooner. And so that was when I, I got one. And up what did he say? Oh, that was the end of it. You know, did you tell him you should have told him you had Calvin Murphy waiting for him to oh, yeah. kick his butt? <laughs> That's right. That's been good. But I, I was happy with what I did. That's one time I, I actually rose to the proper verbal occasion. The best NBA fight that's not on YouTube. Five foot nine Calvin Murphy knocking down Sidney Wicks, who was like six nine. I think he bloodied his nose or broke his nose or something. Uh, uh, yeah, it was a foot, foot difference. But Calvin was Calvin was one tough little sucker. I'll tell you. How much of an influence did you have with Halbert Stam's breaks in the game? Because that was the seventy nine eighty season. You were back with the Celtics or covering the Celtics in the NBA at that point. And- I don't know what influence, quote unquote, I had. I know that we developed a friendship that lasted till he died, and and that uh, he was so he was such a modest guy. Uh, I was <clears throat> the way this all came about. I was sitting in my office uh, one day in January of nineteen eighty, and the phone rang, and I answered it, and and I was looking for me and. I said, yes, Bob Ryan. Well, this is David Halberstam. I'm a friend of Marty Nolan's. Well, Marty Nolan's a great political writer and columnist yeah. for the Globe. Who's, and, and so he had to, he thought it's an entree to me to identify himself as a friend of Marty Nolan's. Well, anyway, he said he was going to be working on a new book on the NBA and that um, he was going to be joining up with the Celtics on an upcoming West Coast trip. And would it be okay if we hung out a little bit and he picked my brain? Uh, yeah, I think so. So that's how we got uh, 
started this in the friendship. He was very gracious to me in the books, The Breaks of the Game. He called me the ombudsman of the NBA, I believe was the phrase, and all that. And it was very nice. I, 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 all I know is that we exchange a lot of thoughts, and, and I obviously was never shy and gave him mine. And, and so whatever he incorporated of mine, I'm very grateful. Well, that's my favorite sports book ever. And, you know, obviously you're one of my favorite writers ever. I feel like you're just knowing you and knowing that book, I felt like your fingerprints were all over the place. Well, he was, uh, but he was so far reaching. And of course, this whole experience of Portland was fascinating and uh, Mm -hmm. the way he was regarded by ownership. And, but, you know, he made lifelong friendships there with Jack Ramsey and and Walton, the name two. And, um, uh, he just loved that. He just loved that experience. It was an interesting man. He, he viewed these sports books as recreation. Uh, the other books, uh, which would take four or five years to write, were, were his life work. I mean, that was his, that was his job. But right. the, all the sports books, and as you noted, he would alternate. And he loved the sports books. He loved working on them. They were fun. Everything about them, getting immersed in all of them. And, and, and there were so many different ones that, uh, you know, that resonate. But one of the great ones, by the way, for anybody who's interested in the topic, and again, given that Boys in the Boat is such a runaway success right now um, about the 1936 uh, Washington crew that won the gold medal, uh, maybe the best thing ever written on rowing is still The Amateurs by, guess mm. who, David Havistan. And so you're with the bird. You're with the Bird team, either as a, a beat writer and then eventually a columnist, really the whole Bird era. And yeah. then Jack McCallum writes a book, Unfinished Business, about the 90-91 team. And that's like the tail end of, of having real access with, with the teams. Yes. After that, it shifts. And by the time Halberstam wrote his kind of breaks of the game sequel, unofficial, about yeah. Jordan in the last bowl season, it got to the point where... He Jordan had promised him a big interview at the end of the season. Jordan didn't talk to him the whole season mm. and then blew him off for the big interview at the end. And it was like, that's everything you need to know about how basketball rating and access changed. Yeah, over that well, the point is funny. It was, it's so symbolic of everything because I was, uh, I, I firmly believe the two things that, that altered the landscape totally for uh, printed press and the NBA were a charter flights because in the seventies and even in the eighties, right up to the mid eighties, the Celtic Lakers series of 84 and 85 did not include any charter flights for either team. Uh, and then in 86, eventually the Pistons were the trendsetters. The Pistons started the charter big time and, and uh, that, that changed things. But second thing with the Bulls themselves, the idea of the Bulls traveling as a rock uh, entourage kind of thing, the security that they had. And then when they constructed their new Berto Center as their training uh, place, they did so with an eye toward walling off the media in every way, including uh, no visibility for their players' parking lot. Forget mm-hmm. about just the idea of practices being closed and the access being restricted. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was a very symbolic uh, middle finger to the media. And, uh, and and the Bulls being the most successful team in the league, you don't think this wasn't copied by everybody in, in theory. And there, and that was the end of access as we knew it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of stuff was copied from that team, right? The pregame intros that we now have to sit through for six minutes. Yeah. You know, in the beginning, it was great. I remember thinking yeah. in the beginning uh, that, God, I'd love to play in Chicago. This is cool. And, yeah. and the original... And the original announcement, the way the guy, I think his name was Ray, I forget now, uh, did it. Uh, Ray Clay. Uh, yeah, that's his name. Ray Clay. Uh, yeah. I think it w- w- was really dramatic. And, he, and and all he had to do was say, and from North Carolina. And that's all he had to say. And the crowd yeah. started cheering. And it was great. And, and But now, you know, we all know what's happened. And, and it, that's, it's a farce everywhere. And, and um, I think I always had a rule in my head, I thought, Bill, that you, you had to have at least a 500 record to be allowed to have a lights out introduction. It seems fair. <laughs> yeah, I think in like 
they're having all these ideas about how to shorten games and should we go to 44 minutes and all this ridiculous <laughs> stuff. And it's like, hey, here's an idea to shorten a game. Maybe the pregame intro shouldn't be eight minutes. Yep. They, how about this? Just bring the lineups out and then start the game. Start yeah, the game well, at 731 you know, like when it should. Well, it's, the league's been given over to the marketers, as we know, and, 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 and not to the basketball people. And, and, and more toothpaste out of more tubes that are never going back in. Zach Lowe and I argue about the uh, shortened game thing all the time because he's much more receptive to it than I am. And my thing is just get rid of the, the, the timeouts at the 10-minute mark at the second quarter and fourth quarter. Yep. I've just saved five minutes. Um, make the 20-second timeout 20 seconds instead yep. of a minute and a half. There's another three minutes I just saved. Uh, make a rule that you can't call a timeout after a timeout. That seems fair. Mm-hmm. Or if you do it, it's just a five-second stoppage, and then the game starts again. Like, There's ways to fix this stuff without shortening the game. No, I, I'm not totally opposed to it. Not to mention what it would do to the record book. So, no, I'm totally opposed to it. I don't oh, think we're going to see that. I really don't. Yeah, I mean, if you shorten it, yeah, I don't think we will either. But you shorten the games, you even lose stuff like the 60-point game, which is one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. You know, And now it's like, all right, well, nobody's scoring 60 again. We're not seeing it. Um what was the best game you ever covered in person? You had to pick one. You really have to. I, I can't get away from the triple overtime in Phoenix in seventy with Phoenix in seventy six. That mm. the, the, the drama of that game because of the way it unfolded after it started out one way and it ended up in such a different radical direction. It started out with the Celtics playing the best fourteen minutes of basketball they played in the entire playoffs in order to get up by twenty two points, and, mm. and and then it became a game of the Suns won't go away until finally they're down nine with three and change and Westfall brings them back, including in there a 360 degree bank spinner that had that that was just awesomely beautiful. And yeah. they get into the overtimes and then all the stuff that happened, the timeout that was that Richie Powers would not grant that would have changed the game. The the uh, the Havlicek basket of the crowd coming on the court, having restore order, followed by the Westfall thinking about to get the timeout so they get the ball at midcourt. Uh, the technical foul made by White. If White doesn't make that technical foul, they lose because Garfield Hurd goes in this this great 18-footer. And don't let anyone ever tell you what would have been a three-pointer today. It was foul line extended. Right. It had this incredible arc, which was the trademark of, of Gar- uh, Garfield Hurd. But no, yeah. it was uh, that. And then Richie Powers, the referee, being attacked on by a fan at the end of the one and, uh, and uh, overtime. And um, finally, uh, Glenn McDonald buried on the bench for a year and a half, coming off the bench to get six points in a minute and a half and, and also commit a turnover, miss a free throw, but ultimately being the hero that with the fresh legs to win the game. Uh, yeah, all this stuff was, uh, you know, it was not supposed to happen because the Celtics was to roll over Phoenix, but uh, Phoenix was a, put up great, great resistance. So it's still that game. Then we get the bird era, Bill, and, you know, I can have about a, five-way tie for first place uh, right. when we get the bird. So I went to that triple overtime game, but I was six and and actually slept for, I think, at least <laughs> one and a half of the overtimes. The part you left out was, it was probably the drunkest Boston crowd of all time, right? Well, it started Games- at 9 p.m. Local. Right. It started at 9, and it was probably, it was wild. No doubt, it was wild. Uh, I witnessed, I suspect that fan who attacked Richie Powers probably had had one or two. And yeah. Um, yeah, it was a wild, wild night. And then, you know, postscript, which the fans never found out about, which is Tommy Heinsohn collapsed in the locker room after the game. Really? And uh, it was so dehydrated that there was a question uh, as to whether he could even make the trip to Phoenix for the game six, which was going to be in, in about 36 hours 
uh, on, played in the morning on in Phoenix time. Uh, I mean, all this stuff went into it. Uh, one other little tidbit, you'll love this one. Dave Cowens had four shots blocked in that game by four different sons. <laughs> really? Yes. There's a, there's a little factoid that uh, people don't know about that game. I think the best, my favorite two Garden games that I ever went to were the 81 game seven against Philly, just because yep. that became a football game. And the comeback for the Celtics coming down 3-1, which seemed impossible at the time, and the Sixers-Celtics rivalry and Bird versus Doc and just everything um, was just an incredible game. And that, that was the one where I remember just people leaving the, the, the stadium, the arena, and just hanging out outside and celebrating. They and did, and you're so title. right. I, I ranked that as the single most emotional of all the games I ever covered. It really was. It really and was. down nine with five and change, the referees put the whistles in the pocket, say, go to it, boys. The, Suns, yeah. the, Celtic, the 76ers get one point in the last 10 possessions, and that was a gift on a bad call that put the Maurice Cheeks on the line. Unfortunately for the Celtics, he missed one. Bird coming out of the pack after about 19 guys hammered uh, Dawkins on a turnaround, gets the rebound, <laughs> goes down, banks it. He never banked it before or since. He banked yeah. one. Uh, all that, as you know. Oh, yeah, and then you're right, right. I still remember that crowd. All I could think of looking at the crowd, the players were at that overhang, that, that overhang thing uh, the, between the garden and the old Analex building. They were looking out. It looked like the Pope waving to the crowd at St. Peter's Square. Right. And the crowd was all out, taking them over the streets. You're, you're so right. It's a sight I had never seen before and haven't seen since. It was, uh, that was, you can't overrate the emotion of Boston Philly rivalry in those days. And and uh, Bird will tell you that it was he liked it even more than the L.A. rivalry. Well, and then the other thing with that, that was the first – Bird was kind of a mute slash hermit those first two years. And, and he unfairly had the reputation of, of being dumb. He didn't say anything. He was awkward around cameras and stuff like that. And he didn't show a lot of emotion on the court. He was just like this silent assassin. And when he made that bank shot, and he he did this sweeping fist pump and like mm-hmm. ran down the court with his arms raised and it was yep, yep, and the yep. crowd was so into it they were like oh he gave us something finally after two years yeah and then it never stopped after that it really didn't and and no. you're right he uh, I, I of all the basketball players I was privileged to cover uh, and including my favorite total personality you know Cowens but yeah. no one had such a innate connection with the fans as 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 Bird it was just no. No comparison. Havlicek didn't have it. Dave, as much as people loved him, didn't have it. Mikhail didn't have it. Nobody had it except the way the way Larry had it. I would say probably hockey fans felt that way about Orr. And it's, yeah. but, but I but I know in basketball it's it's Bird. Uh, people just felt you know I could have a beer with this guy, and they just they just just and he learned to use it, boy, to his advantage and the teams. Well, you know, and in '87 when Lambier cheap shot at him in Game Four. And then game five, that crowd, that was, there was real, real blood in the (laughs) air for that game because Lambert had dared to try to hurt Bird. Oh, yeah. And and I've written this, but I will always believe to my dying breath that uh, the crowd telepathically willed Robert Parrish to just beat the hell out of him. And and Jess Kersey standing there looking at it and like, you know, (laughs) uh, I don't say anything. What? It's like if you know, if you, I know you love movies, and maybe this was this one might be a bit before your time, but uh, one of the great all-time underrated movies is Guide to a Married Man, and I recommend I you one. go get it if you don't know it. And it's and there's some wonderful scenes in there, but the one I'm referring to, I won't go into details. But 
when you get to the Joey Bishop scene, you'll know what I'm talking about with Jess Kersey watching Robert Paris beat the hell out of Liam Beer with the whistle just stuck in his mouth, nothing happening. Does it, you know, there's numbers have become a big thing with basketball writing and just the way we think about basketball these last, I would say, seven, eight years. And I like the numbers, 80% of it. I do feel like sometimes they, they kind of lose the impact. And I think a really good example is, Bird's game six in 86, which he said is the best he could ever play, which you've written yep. is your favorite bird performance. Yep. And you look at the numbers and it's like eh, 29, 10 and 12, something like that. But it wasn't like he didn't shoot lights out. Um, his PR wasn't the best of any bird performance, but like, you know, just being in the arena for that game and how much the fans wanted Samson's blood. That was another one where we wanted blood mm. and the way he played and how he was just everywhere on the court, like a free safety, just a freaking maniac for three and a half quarters. Um, I've never seen anybody have an imprint on that game scoring less than 30 points. Like I he maintain, had in that game. You know, everything I, you say, I echo. And I may I even, how did he get the jump ball against Elijah one? You know, you ask yourself, he did. He was, he <laughs> I forgot that. about that. Um, he, had I, I never saw anybody, including Michael, obviously a vastly superior individual defensive player than Larry ever was, but not that day. Larry Bird read every play. He read every, read every one of the minds of the of the uh, Rockets before they they made a move. I never saw a man play a better game of basketball ever. That's the greatest individual performance. But the only and, and how fitting one comparable performance uh, was, of course, Magic in 1980. And mm. and that that thing at age twenty will stand the test of time. But the, the forty two point seven, fifteen rebounds, seven assists, uh, taking over, playing all five positions, etc. Uh, it's so fitting that those two would have uh, maybe a tie for first in my head, in my heart, uh, were the best games I've ever seen. But but Magic's didn't include the defensive dominance that Larry did on that afternoon in in, in uh, uh, June of eighty six. I would love just that tape to be shown to every high school and college coach or every pro coach now just everybody just say uh this, this is this is the greatest this is how you can't play basketball better than this you can't you it's can't. also a great example of how a crowd can completely take somebody out of a game because samson was an absolute oh, eggshell that for for four quarters larry it's they, funny he said he was watching the news the night before and he saw news clip no news of the rockets arriving and looked at ralph and and, and said basically he said words to the effect of his wife Dinah. I don't think we're going to have to worry about him tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, but you know I feel sorry for Ralph in a couple ways. One is, uh, were you there tonight? Very likely when he got hurt, when he fell on his back. I was and, not. I did watch it on TV, and I remember him getting carried off. My dad was there. He got he carried started off. Started out, Phil. He was killing him. He was. Yeah. He was. He was low. You know, hanging down the low post where he didn't like to go. And he was killing the Celtics. And then he got taken out and landed on his back, and and it was the place went totally silent. It was like when somebody gets beamed at the ballpark. Yeah. And somebody it was silent. And even though no one liked Ralph, you you, you it didn't. You no know, nobody was cheering. That was it was bad. Uh, he was. I don't think he ever played another great game in Boston again. He played. He played some in Houston, but never in Boston. He could never. From that moment on, he was done in Boston. I really believe that. Isn't it amazing how many? what if careers there've been in the NBA. I feel like there's been more what if careers in the NBA than all the other sports combined. Yeah, I that's a lot of them. I haven't thought about that in so many times, but but certainly I always said about Ralph that if he would have in his prime had he been had there been an opera if he could have paid a million dollars 
for an operation that would have made him six four, he would have paid. Right. It. He did yeah, not want yeah. to be seven feet four, and he wanted right. to spend his life proving that he was something more than a seven four guy by becoming an outside shooter. But um, you know, but yet you look at him and what, look what he accomplished in college: three time Player of the Year. He he he, he had it wasn't like his pro career was a failure, but it certainly was unfulfilled. Right, and this goes for whatever reason with the NBA, like even go. This is a little before my time, but Gus Johnson. Who, you know, he's, he had a better career than we, than you might think. If you look up the number of years, I thought maybe it was about a six-year run, but it was more like a nine-year run. And he, he was a nine? man ahead of his time. Yeah, he really was. He was an athlete of extraordinary explosion. They used to he had a he had a move they used to call it a step and stuff, and and he could do some awful great things. He was powerful, and that that battles those battles that he and the Busher were you know they were the standard of the time. But I well, think he had a little bit more of a longevity than you might suspect. You think about uh, cocaine and how many careers that no. altered and changed and all that stuff. Well, you're covering the league then. Did did yeah. you even know that that was that big of an issue in the late 70s? It was kind of – I mean some people were hipper to it than I. I was, I'm always naive in those matters. I kind of missed the boat in, on, on, on the baseball and I – Probably missed the boat to a degree in basketball, but they were not not locally, not with Marvin. I knew something was going on with Marvin. <laughs> right, uh, that's for sure. And um, I knew there were other stories about certain guys, and 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 uh, you know, you heard these stories. Yeah, but the full extent of it did surprise me. I thought it was a lot more, a little more isolated than it turned out to be in that era from roughly 1976 to 80, and before Larry and Magic came along to refocus people a little bit better on on the actual basketball so you knew about the rumors about the oakland hyatt yeah oh the oakland hyatt was notorious yeah yeah the oakland hyatt was notorious no question uh, i would definitely uh say that and uh yeah the way it was fun but i still i don't know you know i i wasn't really very because i was never a great reporter anyway <laughs> <laughs> the the oakland hyatt was the grantland oral history slash 30 for 30 documentary i've always wanted to do but nobody would ever go on the record for it so it's just kind of could be a myth and yeah, that's it. i can't imagine but but it was a fun, that era was funny though i mean it just uh it was just the league had just receded and uh, it was the best i keep throwing this out who was the best player in the league from 1976 to 80 it, it, it's really a good uh, non once again always eliminating centers uh and from that discussion but it could have been marcus johnson and that's low that's setting a low standard that's a low bar yeah i mean walton and kareem but walton what was hurt all, you know walton yeah, had he a, didn't make it. in his mvp year you know that in his mvp year he played 65 games right <laughs> and the next year of course he was off to a great start well we all know this they were 50 and 10 when it all fell apart the, the Trailblazers in 1977-78 were so far and away the best team. It was it was just ridiculous. And then they got then by the end of the playoffs, they had lost four or five stars, starting with one. And, that, and that's actually one of the three or four best teams I've ever seen in person because I went to the game when they came. I think it was the 50 and 10 year, and they came into Boston. They won like 140 to 100, or they they, and they, they beat won them by out like there. 40. I know they beat them out there like by 44. That year. They just they were just a machine. <laughs> And well, it was, there was like, a oh great passing team. Yeah, you know, it was a great passing team, and and Walton. That's why you know my you know my theory on Walton. So I mean, it. And I, I, I'm just going to random thought. You remember when you happened to be at the game in night uh, in 1987, the year after Walton had our the one great year with Boston, but now he's missed yeah. all. But and he finally gets in the lineup late in the year, and this is the team that had the bench of Fred Roberts and Darren Day, mm. etc. And they suddenly had a running attack. It, uh, they put on like a second half of 
just phenomenal display, all because of Walton. And then, of course, he got hurt again. And But that one shining moment of Walton that year, he totally had one, one game, and, and he just totally, you know, reminded everybody of who he was, And, and but he couldn't he couldn't stay healthy. How that's fitting my favorite, that he, that's my favorite Celtic team. How fitting the, the year after, he, he, he is the sixth man of the year, and he's the difference, and he's the reason why I say they're the greatest team of all time, yep. uh, that he gets hurt on the exercise bike. <laughs> how, how fitting is this for Walton? So when you look at the league now, in 2014 versus like the games they'll show in ESPN Classic. Because I agree with you. I think the 86 Celtics were the best team ever. I just think we'll never see anything like that. But then you watch them in ESPN Classic and I always compared them to a hockey team. Like a hockey team on a power play that's just trying to get closer and closer to the net to get a good shot. And they and that, they're almost like a snake, how they would kind of, the defense would just kind of fold into itself because they had these low mm-hmm. post guys and but now it's like everything is about spacing. Everything. And I wonder, like, I would love it. It's obviously impossible and ridiculous, but you take that 86 Celtics team, you move them to 2014 with all the information we have now about spacing and how, you know, the value of the corner three and stuff like that. And now Danny Ainge is, is shooting 400 corner threes a season. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bird is shooting way more threes than he used to shoot. Mikhail is probably shooting more threes it would just have been fascinating to watch that team in this era. Well, it would have been um, a, a lot. Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, because Danny certainly was a three-point shooter. Larry made better psychological use of it than yes. anyone had in his time. That's for sure. He still hated it. As, as philosophically, he was opposed to the three. I don't know if he still feels that way, but I have to ask him. But uh, no, it's just they would have made an, they would have been able to adjust whatever they needed to do. But then again, how you don't want to get too far away from the idea that you had that incredible low post dominance with Parrish and McHale. And then yeah. Larry, when he felt like it, Larry turned himself into a very good post up player uh, as the years went on. Um, and so it, that. No, the only remnant of that left in the world today is is in Memphis with those two guys yep. on the same team. There's nobody else that can match it. Philadelphia's, you know, maybe in three years it'll be Noel and Embiid. Who knows? Don't laugh. That's what they're trying to do. So we'll see. And you, I'm sure you're disgu- as disgusted as their strategy as I am, but at the same time, it's brilliant. Why not? Yeah. Well, you, it's times everything evolves you know everything evolves uh, uh it, it's it's true but i i'm the three mania it, it does disturb me at every level i mean it, it just disturbs me that uh so much of the emphasis on it but it has to be acknowledged it has to be acknowledged defensively and it's mm. got to be acknowledged and, and uh you know but i do miss good post plays funny because there was a point in my in my you know writing career when i i, I was railing about Post play with in terms of Kareem, and I rhapsodized about how wonderful it was to watch Magic in that famous game in 1980 because it didn't involve throwing the ball into the low post. But now I yeah. yearn for it because <laughs> well, it, it does create the spacing and all the stuff we like. But I I worry that you know the league, especially with the way t- organizations are starting to think the same and value the same things, and I worry that the idiosyncrasies that I love about basketball are going to go away. And a good example is. Yesterday against Dallas, you know, I'd been waiting for the Celtics to unleash the Marcus Smart, Avery Bradley. All right, guys, just go out there like two Dobermans and, and mm-hmm. just try to get the ball from the other team's point guard every play. They've just been waiting and waiting, and then they finally did it. They're down by a million points. And the energy that those two guys had, it was just so unlike anything I had seen in the NBA in the last few years. I don't know if you saw the game, but... I didn't, but, uh, yeah. It was I'm, incredible. And, I'm, I'm, and Mar- 
Marcus Smart is very Marcus Smart is shot out of a cannon. Yeah, uh, they draft themselves a, a very intriguing player uh, in Smart, and uh, but you know we've watched Bradley for years. We know he's capable of. of yeah, they're going to be interesting. They're, they're, uh, I just, but I'm first thing I'm asking just just for the fun hell of it, you know, try to win one Western Conference road game this year. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's the drop goes way back. I know, and uh, uh, but yeah, you make a good point. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how Brad. I think Brad's very smart, Stephen. I think Me he, too. He'll, he'll. I. I. I it's going to be very, very interesting. He'll bear watching what he's going to, how he's going to utilize what he's got. He's got components. My word, my favorite word about sports. He's got components, and he's going to have to figure out how best to utilize those components. Well, in the team, also he has an identity, or he's create he's creating an identity because the way they play, they play with a specific pace that he clearly wants them to play with. They have these. They have that three guard lineup that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. I like when they play the three guards with Jeff Green. They don't mm-hmm. have a center. Um, they don't have anything rem- remotely approaching a center, and that's the one piece that's missing. But they have all these assets. They have expiring contracts. You know, it, it's a team that is actually kind of sneakily poised to make a trade if somebody interesting becomes available if they wanted to go that way. I'm going to ask you um, a question. Just switching yeah. gears, you have you have a choice. Somebody's going to buy you a season ticket anywhere you want. What team do you want the free season ticket for this year? Just for this year only. Yeah, just for this year, entertainment value. Golden State. Ooh, answer's the same. That is the correct answer. It was the correct answer last year, and maybe even more so this year. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad to know you feel that. To me, it's like a no-brainer with Golden State. I love Golden State. I thought they were – and I'm – I don't know whether or not Kerr is the right man. I just know that Mark Jackson was the wrong man. I know that they, I believe they underachieved last year, contrary to widespread popular opinion. I think they'll benefit from getting away from him. He's a fraud. And, and uh, I, uh, you know, I think that uh, uh, I just hope Kerr's the right guy. I, I really want to see that team succeed. But that has to start with Bogut staying healthy. And that's always a, a big X factor. By the way, you taught me like 78% of everything I ever knew about basketball. So it's no surprise that we had the same answer. And I agree with you. I thought they underachieved with Mark Jackson. And I am – you remember once upon a time when uh, when somebody who might have the same name as me was writing that Doc Rivers wasn't a good NBA coach? I, I, I Vaguely. But I said, like, nah. When I saw, and, when I saw that somebody that I recognized sitting – Cheek to jowl with him, yucking it up on TV. I thought to myself, well, this is interesting. <laughs> so you said at the time, and I stand by it. I don't think Doc did a good job those first couple Boston seasons. And I will ride that one to my okay. grave. But you wrote a piece and I had written a couple things. And back home, it became a big deal that I was going after Rivers because he he was so beloved in the media circles, he's a great interview. He'd had relationships with good people and nobody had dared to say anything bad about him. And you wrote a piece that I thought was very fair where you disagreed with me. You didn't go after me. You just had a different opinion. And the ba- the basic um, theme of the piece was I've known Doc Rivers since he was a kid in Chicago. I know the way he thinks about basketball. I know how he is as a human being and whether he's there or not as a coach, I believe it's in there and he's going to get there. At some point. I mean, that, that was basically what you wrote, right? Yeah, you were right. I would, I'll, I'll say that. Yep. Um, and it's interesting, like with Steve Kerr, I know him pretty well. Um, I've had a lot of really, really good basketball conversations with him. 
I just think that he is the right guy to coach a really good team, especially a team that has cool offensive pieces like that. I think he's learned from the right people and he's put a ton of thought into what kind of coach he wants to be. And I think that team's a sleeper. I really do. I think that team that would not shock me if they won the title. I thought last year, the personnel wise one to seven was as good as anybody one Mm. to seven. Uh, And, um, and once again, Bogut is so much without him doing what he can do, being out there often enough, it, it, we don't, there's no conversation. Then they're just a, a gimmick, you know. They're right. like a Nelly team, yes. <laughs> you know, one of Nelly's, like the old Warriors. But but with Bogut playing well, they can compete. They can compete for a championship. I really believe that. And he's somebody. It's a better version of Anderson Barajal, where it's like, yeah, oh, okay, got to love Barajal. You got to stay in the court. Yep. You know, and it's both of those guys have just had trouble playing for eight straight months. And until they do, it's tough to just pencil them in. I got to ask you about, um, we were talking about Bird and how beloved he was in Boston. And you were there for Bobby, or I only remember the tail end of it. I was there for the entire Pedro. Um, and now Brady, these last 14 years. My dad and I, we've been, we were talking, I had my dad on the podcast yesterday after the Big Pats went. We're ta- and I was saying my theory about how when the Brady, the Kansas City game happened and, you know, for the first time there was real, oh, what do we do about this guy, Garoppolo? Like it, it became a sports radio stupid argument for a week is Brady done all this stuff. And I feel like it galvanized the Boston fans behind this team and you can feel it in the crowds and just I don't think people wanted the Brady era to be over. Do you feel like it's a little rejuvenated now these last five weeks? <laughs> Positively, because he's making throws that he wasn't making two years ago. Forgetting about earlier this year, he suddenly discovered that laser beam uh, sideline to sideline thing that the, the 25 yard pass to gain you 15 yards. Mm. He was an, a woefully inaccurate passer uh, and not very, uh, beginning of the year, throwing 15 and beyond, and, and, and most of last year, not very good either. Um, so he's, I don't know whether. I don't know. It's just the idea that he's got confidence and he's, he's now got people to throw to. All we talked about in the first four weeks in this regard was he only had one target, and that was Edelman. Well, now he's got multiple targets, starting with, you know, who, the great number 87. And, yeah. and LaFell has caught on, and um, he's got something. He's playing better. Um, it, it's, I, I'm embarrassed. I, I, uh, I certainly didn't jump in that chorus and uh, join that chorus that was, and you're so right about the talk show, the actual, for people listening to this nationwide, well, might find it just stupefying, but trust me, the actual dialogue was, well, what can we get for him? Can we get two ones? Can we get a one and a two? Can we get a one and a four? What can right. we get for him? And, you know, that's time. Is it time to make that transition and give it to Garoppolo and let Tom go on his merry way? And, oh yeah, it was, that, you're right. It was shrill. It was scary. I never went that far. I did. I said, Wait, don't be ridiculous. But I didn't expect him to bounce back to the level that he's playing now. No, I did not. I was fortunate or maybe unfortunate too, but I, I, I was actually uh, on a hiatus during that point and was unable to give my thoughts about the Patriots, <laughs> which might have been a blessing in retrospect. But <laughs> my thing was uh, they couldn't block. And it's like you put a quarterback who can't move behind an offensive line who can't block, and, and I don't know what the end game is other than a disaster. And yeah. miraculously, they relearned how to block. Well, that's the thing. To me, the great mystery unsolved is how how did they go from having the most chaotic offensive line situation in the NFL after week four? Nobody had a more unstable incomprehensible, uh, non-rotation, non-selection of starting play. It was just chaotic. 
to what, putting one together in time to beat Cincinnati and win the last five games. I don't know how they did this, uh, I, 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 but they did it because now the line is a representative NFL line that can protect the quarterback quite well. They could have played in a tuxedo yesterday, or, or excuse me, on Sunday. So um, that's the great question. Everybody's talking about Brady and the receivers and, and all that, but I'm just the line thing, right? It starts right there with him, no question. And Gronk's the great equalizer and well, X factor. And okay. as long as he's 100% or 90% or 98% or whatever, he, we hopefully is, they can beat anybody. We're talking about, in the short run, the greatest tight end who has ever lived. I mean, it's I just agree. so obvious to me. There has never been a better package of passing and blocking than this guy. And that's who he is. He's the greatest tight end that's ever lived. And um, that he may not have much of a career, and I worry as much about what happens to him in the offseason as what might happen to him on the field some year. He's doing something stupid. He's a big, elegant goofball is what he is, but he is an incredible football player. And my fear is because they've changed the tackling rules in so many different ways that nobody can nobody hits high anymore at all. And with somebody like him, there's no other real way to tackle him other than to do the T.J. Ward and just go right at his I worry knees. about it. We saw we had a hold-the-breath moment on Sunday when Ward yep. again went low. And um, these these he makes all the DBs look like the Laputians. And you're right. They all feel the only hope they have is to go low. And we were, we were you know, something we have to worry about. And he has to worry about every game. No question. It's, a, it's, a, it's out there. And, and this great blissful moment where he's playing as well as he can – it's almost like a, a pitcher, every pitch, as we know, could be the last any pitcher ever delivers. And with him, I worry every time somebody comes after him low, well, it's, he's not it's, getting up. It's weirdly similar to Pedro in 99 and 2000, right? Where you're like, oh, this wispy guy. I'm taking, <laughs> I'm taking every one of these single starts not for granted because who knows? It could I, end, I, it could I end tomorrow. I, I, I absolutely told my wife uh, pretty early on in the Pedro era, he's pitching, I'm going. That's it. I'm going. Right. I'm home. They're home, I'm going. Uh, working, not working, don't care. I'm going. I have to go. This is history. This guy, so uh, you're absolutely right. That's the way I felt about Pedro. And this is this guy, you're looking at history with this guy. You're looking at historic greatness, the, a mastery of a position. And so if you love football, you have to have your eyes on this guy. You you were in the Boston. I used to listen to you in the Boston radio in the early 80s. You were in the Lauren and Wally show. Still and there, you, you calling, know. I know. I'm aware. Um <laughs> And you would call in and talk Celtics. And at that point, there was really no sports radio in Boston. Um, hearing you talk about whatever was going on with the team, like sometimes you'd be still on when my dad was dropping me off at school and we would just you know, stand outside waiting for the segment in it so we could go in. Sports radio has evolved now in all, you know, across the country. It's a 24-hour thing. And in Boston, it really started to take hold when EI, you know, became the 24-hour station. It's been negative. negative, put it this way, negativity seems to be the way that people get heard back home. And that mm -hmm. was the case when I lived there. That was the case when I left. It seems to be the case now. And the, the friends that I have, the family I have, they don't totally understand it, why it's so negative, why it always gravitates toward the negative angle. Why do you think that's the case? I just know that it's so. I wonder if it's any different in any market in America. I, 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 I think it's the any sports talk show host would agree that uh, it, it's richer programming when things aren't going well than when it is. Uh, people just love to about the boss. Uh, I, I don't know. It's a, it's a very interesting human phenomenon. That's all. Uh, and and it, it, it's certainly we're no we're not we're not immune to it. And uh, it, I, I, it's why I never. 
Well, I stopped listening full-time to talk radio 10 years ago. It'll be 10 years ago in December when I kind of went semi-cold turkey when I got satellite radio installed. And I, I, I listened to music, and I listened to ESPN uh, uh, and radio, and, and, that, and I listened to music and, and play-by-plays, and that's it. Um, so, I mean, I, my theory on talk radio is if I ain't on it, I ain't listening. Now, I am listening a little more, I find, in this retirement phase because I need to know things that are going on locally, and you know, so I yeah. have to plug into the dialogue. So I'm I'm not out of it, okay? With with a major controversy that's raging on air. I mean, I have to be smart about it, but I don't listen as much as other people. Um, and and why I don't, in, uh, whenever I would get my opportunity, I I, I try to, to avoid that. I mean, I don't know how do you do it. You steer the conversation. Uh, maybe historical comparisons or come up with some good topic that you can try to drive. The, if you just let the, the fans every day drive the topics, then it's more than not, more than likely it's going to be negative. That's all I know. Well, I mean, you, you basically answered what I was going to say about you. You never did that stuff. And you, and you know, anytime you're on the radio, when I, you know, when I was living in Boston, I was, I was like, Oh good. Today is, will actually be a balanced discussion today. And the people that I grew up with in Boston, especially Ray Fitzgerald, who the late great uh, Lee Montville, yourself, it it wasn't that negative in the seventies and the early eighties. And part of me wonders: is it a function of just what happened to the Boston sports fans in the nineties and early two thousands, where it was like we had this drought, the Red Sox thing was hanging over everyone's head, and it just kind of went that direction, and now there's no going back. I don't know. I really can't answer it. Um, but now that, let's look at it this way, though. No city in America has had a better start to the 21st century than Boston with 18. I know. And, and, and one in each of four sports, and including one seven-year run of, of a championship in each of the four sports. And yet we still are no different than any other market. Uh, people, how soon they forget, uh, people get entitled, people get greedy. Um, uh, I, you know, I observe all this and Wish it weren't so, but it is so. so I mean, Do you think it's a cold weather thing? Because well, like Philly and New York is, are kind of wired uh, like that too. Well, I think that's why the East and, and, and certain areas are, and the Chicago are, are more passionate general fans than people in, in, in uh, warmer weather. I've always believed the climate has something to do with those driving those passions, fueling those passions, the, the desire to get out and enjoy the spring and the summer uh, and then to decide the need to get inside and huddle up in the warmth of the gyms and the hockey arenas and, and the mm-hmm. winter and all that. I mean, that's a theory that's certainly not exclusive to me. I think there's something to that. But uh, uh, well, I can just tell you being in L.A., you know, like the yeah. Kershaw thing. Kershaw just blows the 6 nothing lead in game one. This guy's supposed to be the next Koufax Pedro guy. And, you know, if if the equivalent of that had happened with the Red Sox oh. and they had lost round one the way they did and then oh. the Yankees had won the World Series with the team that the Giants had, <laughs> I, the people would be in a coma for like a month. After oh, yeah, that. it would be it would be unim- unimaginable. You're, no, you're so right. Uh, but that's why I've always loved being here. Uh, they care. They react. Uh, it's good for business. Um, uh, it certainly was good for me. Um, in every which way, uh, I couldn't imagine having had a better opportunity. The only city, I'll be honest, Bill, the only city that's ever intrigued me, I used to say to my wife all the time, you know, I'd love a year or two sabbatical just to find out. Mm. Chicago, because not, wow. only do you have, not only do you have all the pro teams and two baseball teams, you've got the what we don't have here is National College interest with the Big Ten and Notre Dame, and that's the big hole in Boston's soul, as you very well know. 
Yeah, never totally made sense either. I don't know why it wasn't Boston College. Uh, just your alma mater. Yeah, I know. Well, I my mom's alma on, mater. Years ago, it's a polarizing school around here. I know. And, uh, there's no question. People love them or hate them. They're not much in the middle ground. And um, but they just wasn't. The people just didn't. In, in large numbers, you know. Now you, the Flutie era, it was big. It was huge. Flutie era was big. They were filling. Foxborough Stadium with Flutie. True. Yeah. And BC's had some very good basketball teams, and, that, and they, at times they've even been able to fill the garden at times. But when, then it, when it subsides in the lean years, there's, no, there's minimal residual interest. I, can't, I'm a, I just fear what's going to happen this year when I don't know how they're going to get a win, even one win in the ACC, uh, what the crowds are going to be like this year. We're just not a college town. We're just not. We just aren't, aren't, aren't. And the only time Two things- is that... Hockey, of course. We're a hockey mecca, but when we're talking about football and basketball, you don't talk about Boston. Two things hurt, I think, in the 80s that happened. One was Holy Cross just getting rid of sports. Yeah. Because the BC Holy Cross rivalry was a real thing, and it was great. And I was there when it was gro- when I was growing up. My dad went to Holy Cross. My mom went to BC, and it was a real thing. Mm. And I almost like didn't know what side to take. And then Holy Cross just kills all their sports. I'll never forgive them for it. I'll never give money until they change their mind. Um, that was one. The other, if Ewing goes to BC, it's a totally different animal these last 30 years, I think. Maybe. Maybe they would have turned it with Georgetown's been ongoing. It could be. It's theoretically possible. Yeah, I I agree that. Uh, Well, can you imagine Ewing at BC just being able to go to those games in 80, 81, 82? Like seeing this guy who was like, college Ewing was such a different beast than NBA Mm. Ewing. I mean, it's like you can't even compare. No, no, you're right. He was uh, he was a monster, and yeah, that would have been interesting. I've really never thought about that. Uh, you know, I just uh, just haven't. I just resigned to the idea that he left, and that was that. You know, I mean, I care. I'm in a minority here. I love it. I still love college sports, even though I liken it in my book to being in love with a hooker. And it's, and you know, and and, and it's, I think it's an appropriate analogy. But I'm, I'm an enabler. I can't help it. Because they could have gone from Ewing to Flutie. Yeah. Right, exactly. Which would have been nuts. Hey, last thing. Um, you became multimedia. I'm gonna say. When did you become multimedia? Well, I don't basically, know. when I got on the Sports Reporters, is where I got a continuing right. association with national television, which was Sports Reporters in 1989. So now that's just part of the job. <laughs> like when you when you were making your bones and making your name for yourself and, and all that, you, you were just a reporter and that's it. Totally. And now being a media person requires you to have four pitches instead of one. I have um, to dress. You know, I just, what it means is I got to leave the house. To, I got to, I got to dress, you know, I better, I have to dress for TV today. I think of, you know, stuff like that. Uh, it's a natural phenomenon for me. I'm, I'm blessed in that I'm comfortable in front of the microphone I'm comfortable in front of the camera. I can. I. I. I, I know I have a, a, a annoying voice for people. I know I have a annoying cadence for people. I know I. I have uh, an accent uh, uh, indeterminate. Is the guy from New England? Is the guy from Philly? Is the guy from New York? Where's he from? Uh, kind of thing. I, I know all that, but somehow I surmounted, you know, circumvented that and managed to stay viable in this medium. And and it's and I enjoy it. I think if you really embrace it, enjoy it, and 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 want to be good at it. I've just been like, it's been a great adjunct to my life. I mean, I, how can I say otherwise? So you, I mean, my feeling with you is you could keep doing PTI until 
you're 89 years old. Well, PTI, you mentioned, you know, I, I, for the one trillionth time, let me say, you, it's the most fun you can have on television. I, that is beyond, as much as I enjoy and I appreciate the opportunity to be on, around the horn, and, and, and I love all the guys I work with. It's great. Uh, you know, there's five of us there, and there's only two of you on PTI. And so more turns, more time to show off, more time to right. have fun. It's just that simple, and the format fits me ideally. It's, that format was made for those two guys. And, and yet, uh, if there's another person out there to whom that format fits well, I, I would have to, in all immodesty, say it's me. Well, and also, you've known those two guys since 1930. Yeah, that's right. Known both, and, and, you know, right. Tony, 35 years, Michael, 25. So, uh, roughly, give or take. Right. The thing that people don't understand about that show is it's a relationship show, first and foremost. And the people that work on that show are the people that have relationships with the other person they're doing it with. Because you need, you need like a certain level of trust to do that show correctly. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's, I mean, I, I've worked with a number of different people and, 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 you know, you do the best you can and even those, but um, working with one of them is very different and, and mm-hmm. very, you know, it, it, it's better. Me. Well, I'm making you fly to L.A. to be on the Grantland basketball show. So just be prepared. Well, I'm, I'm more than uh, happy to accept the uh, invitation. I would love to have you on. Thanks. Um, I encourage everyone to read Scribe, which is out available where bookstores uh, sell books and Amazon.com and all those places. Is it on Amazon or did they get weird with it? No, Amazon has been very good with it. And oh, one more thing, uh, audio. It's available in audio for people who prefer that format. Audio? Did you oh, do the audio? I did it. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, you must I did have it. loved that. I did it and had a lot of fun with it. And I've heard some I, – I, I haven't heard it. I'm dying to hear it, but I haven't heard it. But I did it. All right. Keep cranking. You're an inspiration. Thanks for everything. Uh, and I'd love to see you in LA in the group. All right. Very good. Well, Go to you Thank you. Point. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks, Bob. Thank you for downloading the BS Report with Bill Simmons. Too much fun. Check out more podcasts at the iTunes Music Store or at PodCenter at ESPNRadio.com. Peace out.